Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good. So good to see you. It's a, it's a sleepy morning. I mean, just driving in this morning, it felt sleepy. I'm sleepy. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. But, um, but it does feel just like everything around here is a little bit quieter. Um, on our weather app for the last, I don't know, seven days or something like that, it's been predicting snow at my house. And so we've been, um, you know, really getting the kids all excited that snow is coming. And then they woke up this morning to horrible disappointment. And we said, that's life, children. That's how life works. Um, A week ago, I made a promise that uh, today we were going to talk about the way of Jesus and politics. Um, That was after preaching a message, kind of sharing just a, a little bit about how Jesus confronted the theology and politics of the Pharisees uh, last week and addressing the issue of Christian nationalism. And today we want to just talk a little bit more robustly about kind of how Christians think about and engage uh, with politics. And then after making that promise, I spent seven days uh, reading and writing and rewriting and praying and begging God for mercy uh, in preparation to talk about this subject. You see, there are very few things in the world as radioactive as preaching a sermon about politics. I'm convinced that I could preach a sermon about giving and about wives submitting to their husbands in all things and would feel way less tense. If I preached that that sermon, both of those topics at the same time, it would feel less tense in the room than the moment you bring up politics. And, uh, you know, I think that most of us who have been around for any length of time would, would be able to say that it feels like the tension in our country is just getting worse and worse, that the atmosphere is getting more and more charged. Now, there are a lot of reasons why a person might leave a church. And some of those reasons are really great. Like if you get a new job and it moves you to a different city or something, That's a good reason to have to go find a new church. Or maybe getting married and then, you know, one spouse goes to the other spouse's church. That's a good reason to to leave. Um, Or even just feeling called to join God in in something that he is doing in another part of the city. Those are totally good. But then there are other reasons that people leave churches that are a bummer but are still somewhat understandable. Things like a theological shift or breakdown of relationship that just is, have, is really struggling to be reconciled, or failures of leadership in the church. But if I'm being honest, I have been so bummed this year by the wave of Christians leaving their churches, their communities, their church families over issues like politics. And it's not just our church, it's churches all over the city and all over the country, and it feels like there has been a great reshuffling of the church deck over political disagreement. And it seems to me that political alignment is proving to carry as much or more weight than theological alignment in many Christians' hearts. And so we need to talk about it this morning, and we need to talk about it for two reasons. First, it is precisely because of the fact that political alignment has taken up such an outsized space in our hearts that we need to confront it with the teachings of Jesus. And secondly, we need to talk about it because politics matters. They matter because politics inform policies that ultimately impact people 
And God cares a lot about people. It matters who is elected to lead the, the strongest, the most powerful country in the world. And so it's important that we as Christians be thoughtful about these matters and be willing to engage them together. Are you still with me? Okay, good. See, God has given you influence, power to influence our world. Your participation matters. And I believe that Christians ought to engage in larger culture, including the many facets and nuances that we categorize as sort of political life. And so last week in the sermon that I preached, I spoke pretty forcefully about the false gospel of Christian nationalism. But this week, I want the tone of this sermon to actually dial back quite a bit. So just trust me, this is not going to be a hot-button sermon. So let's all just take a deep breath together, smell the roses, blow out the candles, let's relax and pray. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for, we thank you for the, being able to live in this country at this time and as your people to have a voice and a say in what happens in our nation. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to be your hands and feet and mouthpieces right here in America and right here in the state of Washington. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the, all of the allegiances, all of the junk, all of the things that clutter our hearts so that we can more purely receive from you and be your people. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, earlier this week, uh, we had a transition of power in our country. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in as the president and vice president of the United States. It was quite a momentous occasion. And there were two kind of main highlights from that day. The first was Bernie Sanders' mittens, which all of the memes have been giving me life all week. Oh, I needed it. It was so good. And the second highlight, the, probably the, mu- the much more important highlight, was Amanda Gorman reciting a poem called The Hill We Climb, a poem that she finished writing on the night of January 6th, the day that, that there was the insurrection at the Capitol. And I don't know how many of you guys were able to watch the inauguration, but this poem was powerful. It, was, it, it stirred my soul, it inspired me, it encouraged me, it blessed me. And in this poem, she, she basically just confronted the truth and the reality that we are a country that is nowhere near where we want to be. We are still a country that is full of brokenness and challenges, but she spoke with such hope of the foundation of who we are and how we can overcome all of those things together. It was just great. It was so good. And then after her poem, we heard President Biden's inaugural address where he emphasized the need for unity in the days ahead. I think that he spoke with a, with a great deal of hope. He encouraged unity. It, it, it stirred me as well. And then following the ceremony, all of the pundits started to weigh in about the day. And so many pundits were gushing over just the power of Amanda Gorman's poem and the president's word, how, how unifying and beautiful it was. And at the same time, other pundits were upset, calling the president's speech disingenuous, even condescending. And this sums up our political moment, that even speeches that call for unity manage to divide us. And while it may feel like the polarization and division in our nation are new, or at least the level that they're at are new, 
history reminds us that the way that, that, that this is the way that human beings have always been. In fact, Jesus' first century world was just as polarized, I believe, as ours is today. You see, in Jesus' day, God's people faced a, a complex social, political, and religious dynamic that all sort of collided at the same time. The Jewish people were under the overwhelming power of Rome, struggling with their own national and religious identity um, in the midst of a world that really didn't have a lot of room for them. And so sincere followers of Jesus wrestled with how to be faithful and fruitful in community in a place where their values were constantly being being undermined and even persecuted. And, and various groups in that day responded to this challenge in different ways. On one hand, you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they were, they were sort of the, the powerful in Israel, the, the, the power brokers. They, they were compromised and they made deals with Rome so that they could have influence and power. They sold out and watered down their obedience and were then allowed to live comfortably under an occupying empire. They just sort of made peace with the, with the empire they were under. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more of the separatists. They became the culture warriors, and they mourned the decline of morality and religious faithfulness in their nation. And so they were always looking back to the, to the glory days when Israel was mighty and independent. Then you had the Essenes. And the Essenes, these were, this was a group of people who retreated to the wilderness as a way of escaping the godlessness of the culture. They believed being totally separate and disengaged from the culture. Many scholars believe that John the Baptist actually spent a lot of time with the Essenes out in the wilderness before he began his ministry. And then the fourth group you have are the Zealots. And the Zealots resisted the pagan occupation of Rome through violence. They fought fire with fire, as it were. They were a band of violent extremists. They were terrorists against the state. And so all of these groups, they had radically different means of reaching for a similar end. They actually had a shared hope. Like we talked about last week, they had an eschatological longing for the kingdom of God. And even though they longed for a similar end, they despised one another. They hated each other because they all had a different means of achieving that end. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and he blows up all of their categories with his teaching about the kingdom of God. The very thing that they were longing for and that they were bickering with each other about, Jesus completely turned upside down. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's going from town to town, village to village, preaching the good news about this kingdom, he begins inviting people to come and follow him. And within his circle of close friends that we call the 12 disciples, Jesus actually invites young men from these different sects to come and do life together under his leadership. You see, Jesus didn't just draw from one group or another, nor was, he, nor was Jesus only attracting people from one group or another. Jesus invited all of these different people to come and figure out how to submit to the kingdom of God in unity. And, and so two disciples in particular would have been natural enemies. Matthew was a tax collector which means that he operated under the authority of Rome to exploit his own people through excessive taxation. He would literally take, like, take, take more than enough money from people who were already quite poor, keep a whole bunch of it for himself, and give a whole bunch of it to the occupying power that all of them hated. 
And then, on the other hand, you have Simon the Zealot. He was from the Zealot sect, the terrorist group. He hated Rome. He was committed to fighting against Roman occupation and to do so with violence. And here they are, sharing their lives together under Jesus. And somehow, despite their opposing viewpoints, Matthew and Simon became friends as they followed Jesus together. In his book, Uh, Jesus Outside the Lines, Scott Sauls writes this. He says, Matthew's emphasis on a tax collector and a zealot living in community suggests a hierarchy of loyalties, especially for Christians. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. We should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. Amen. And so when Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, it didn't fit comfortably with any of the other group's definitions or values. The Pharisees hoped to receive this promised kingdom through national purity and holiness and adherence to religious tradition. The Sadducees, they were more pragmatic and fell in line with the Roman rule for the sake of comfort and power. The Essenes sought the the kingdom through escape, and the Zealots sought it through violence. And Jesus preached something that offended every single one of them. The teachings of Jesus almost always fell into a category that we call the third way. You see, in a world at that time and today that was full of hardened binary thinking, black and white, this or that, Jesus brought nuance. And the nuance that Jesus brought always managed to cut way deeper than either sides, uh, either side of the controversy. He would cut all the way to the heart behind the controversy. And so consider the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually addresses seven teachings in his day that were divisive and controversial, and he offers a third way. You see it in the phrase where he, he keeps repeating this phrase where he says, you have, said, you have heard that it was said, blank, but I tell you, blank. And so he addresses issues of how the law should be interpreted. He addresses issues of of what murder is, adultery, divorce, oaths, violence, how you treat your enemies. And Jesus says, one group says this, one group says this. You've heard this teaching, but I'm here to tell you something that is altogether like deeper, something that reaches all the way to the heart. These were controversies in first century Judaism. And in each and every one of them, Jesus shows a different way a way that cuts past technical legalism and addresses issues in the heart. And he didn't do this just in those seven areas. Throughout the Gospels, we see it over and over again in how he talked about the Sabbath, how he addressed national identity and race, how he talked about taxes, how he talked about care for the poor and those who were ceremonially unclean. In everything that Jesus said and did, he turned the worldview of his hearers upside down by speaking with nuance and grace. And Jesus was totally aware of the fact that he was stirring up controversy. One would even go so far as to say he was intentionally stirring up controversy. In Matthew chapter 10, we read this. Jesus says this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus came stirring the pot. I love Jesus. That's, that's my style too. Um, and so all of the varying sects of Jesus' day were against Jesus. In some cases, even conspiring together. Though they hated each other, they conspired together to, for, to have Jesus executed by the state. And the clearest example of something like this happening is found in Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, go and open up to Mark chapter 12. Now, for a little bit of context before we read it, this story that we're about to read is taking place after Jesus had just stirred things up in Jerusalem. Jesus had already entered through the city gates of the city um, as, as they were preparing for the festivals. And he shows up riding on a donkey, and people are praising him as the king of the Jews, laying down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then right after he, he enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and we read that he walks into the temple, he looks around for a little bit, he kind of nods his head, and then quietly walks back out so that he could sleep on his decision. This was not like a moment of passion. He goes, sleeps on his decision, he wakes up the next morning, comes back to the temple with a whip, and then he drives money changers and those who are exploiting the poor out of the temple. And then you know what the story is right after that? Then Jesus begins teaching in that same temple, and he's telling parables about how these, these, these leaders who are in the temple are like these wicked tenants of a vineyard who murder or who, who persecute and murder the prophets and ultimately, ultimately the Son of God. And the leaders in the temple who are surveying the mess that he just made by tipping over all the tales, by having heard all of the people in Jerusalem crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after hearing him say that they are wicked servants who should be burned with fire, felt offended. They felt a little bit bothered after that. So we read that they begin conspiring together to try to trap Jesus. And the rest of, of Mark chapter 12 is story after story of them approaching Jesus with difficult questions, trying to trap him so they could bring an accusation against him. And here's what we read, beginning in thir verse 13. It says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to teach Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. Yeah, nobody's going to tell you what to do. Because you don't pay attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him the coin and asked him, whose image, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's? And they were amazed at him. This story is pure brilliance. I mean, you got to give credit to all of these different sects for coming up with a pretty, pretty impressive plan, to be honest. They come to Jesus with this 
question, should we pay the temple tax? Now, to understand this, the temple tax was a tax that was imposed by Rome through the temple system. And it was exorbitant, and it was hated by the Jewish people. Because essentially what Rome was doing was going into the place of their worship, demanding that they pay Rome to keep them in to keep them subjugated. The temple tax directly funded Roman soldiers, directly paid for the Roman soldiers who were there oppressing those people. They hated this. And so when they asked this question, should we pay the temple tax, Jesus was caught sort of in a no-win situation. If he said yes, then the people in Israel would recognize that he's no real Messiah. He's all talk. But when the rubber meets the road, he's not going to actually stand up and resist Rome. But if he answers, no, you shouldn't pay the temple tax, then they can go take the charge to to Rome uh, that that Jesus is guilty of sedition against the state, calling people to not pay their taxes that would eventually lead to an insurrection. And so here's Jesus at the height of of his ministry in Jerusalem, the center of power, in the middle of the Jewish feast of Passover. So the city is just buzzing and full of passionate religious people, and there is tension in the air, and the wrong answer to this question will result in Jesus losing his life or his relevance. What's he going to say? It's a lose-lose. And then he drops this answer, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were blown away. You see, this answer, it satisfies the question of what to do about the tax, but it takes it all the way to the heart behind the controversy, to these people's purpose. He says, if you give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, if you give, if you give to Caesar that which bears his image on it, then whose image do you have on yourself that you need to give yourself to? That because we have the image of, we are made in the image of God, his image is on us, We have to give all of ourselves, all of our lives, to him. You see, the way of Jesus in this moment wasn't to avoid the question or to find some sort of watered-down middle ground. That's what politicians do today. You see, you couldn't reasonably call Jesus a centrist. Jesus wasn't lazily in the middle. Jesus was fiery about the kingdom of God. He never shrunk back from the truth. He was passionate about justice and the poor. He, was, he cared deeply about holiness and commanded a way higher obedience than that of the Pharisees. Jesus wasn't some milquetoast, middle-of-the-road guy. And as Christians, we should want to be like Jesus. As Christians, we should be bold and clear and uncompromising about that which Jesus is bold and clear about himself. And the problem is, in doing that, these things don't fit comfortably in our modern political structures today. This way of engaging the world that Jesus demonstrated uh, while he was here alive on the earth, um, this way of thinking carried on uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection through his people, through the church. Um, In a recent panel discussion, I heard Timothy Keller talk about how the early church was known in the ancient world for five key distinguishing marks. The first mark was that the early church was multi-ethnic. It was really devoted to racial justice and racial equality. Secondly, 
It was oriented toward the poor. It cared deeply about economic justice. Third, it was known to be conciliatory, meaning that if you killed a Christian, Christians wouldn't come back and try to kill you. Christian, the Christian church was peacemaking. It was bridge building and forgiving. Fourth, it was pro-life, meaning that it was against infanticide and abortion. The early church would rescue children that had been abandoned and exposed and adopt them into their community and raise them themselves at great personal cost. And then finally, number five, it believed that sex was something that was reserved for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. Now, look at those five distinguishing marks. The early church was a sexual counterculture. It was pro-life. It was civil and gracious. It was for economic justice, and it was for racial justice. These are the values that the world knew the early church by. Now, if you look at the first two values on that list, racial justice and economic justice, those appear to lean, in our political structures, those would appear to lean more Democrat. And then the last two on that list, the issues of pro-life and traditional sexuality, would appear to lean more Republican. And then the middle one, civility, doesn't sound like either side. And so the, ch so the church breaks down all of our categories. And the problem is that when we are more influenced by political partisanship than we are by the way of Jesus, we will end up abdicating our responsibility to be serious about all five of these, of these distinguishing marks rather than just the two that we care about. So Republican-leaning, so Republican conservative-type evangelicals will be very strong in their, their demand that we protect the unborn and for st standing up for traditional sexuality and marriage. But they may end up shrinking back about the issues of racism or the problem of poverty or, or, or inequality because it just kind of feels a little too liberal. Don't really want to be lumped in with that group. And in doing that, when that happens, they're actually being seduced by the culture to avoid some of the things that were championed by Jesus. And likewise, many younger evangelicals today are passionate about, about things like racial justice, caring for the poor, but they may be also you know, afraid of talking about things like abortion or homosexuality because they don't want to look like bigots and similarly be influenced by the culture rather than the way of Jesus. And so what we see here is that the way of Jesus, it defies our partisan divides. As Christians, we are called to follow Jesus even when it seems or feels like it's at odds with our preferred political team. Question, was the early church loved for this? No, not at all. The early church was persecuted, jailed, and publicly executed in the arena. Their allegiance was to Jesus, and, and this allegiance to Jesus did not give them favor with those who were in power. In fact, quite the opposite. But it was their patient, sacrificial resistance to the power structures of the day for the sake of justice that ended up changing the world. And much of what we see, the, the world becoming a more just place, happened directly because of the Christians, because Christians laying down their lives for what is right. And I believe that the church today must learn to think and see the world the way that Jesus did, according to sort of the, the third way. 
to be able to distinguish the way of God's kingdom from the way of the culture like Jesus, it requires a great deal of depth for us. It requires us to rewire our brains and change the way that we think. It requires us to be rooted in God's word. We essentially need to learn how to think theologically before we try to think politically. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. My friends, for for many in this room, you may need to do some soul-searching and some repenting of the great disparity between how much time you spend consuming news and podcasts and reading and cable news compared with how much time you are spending engaging in God's word. I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm just saying we're all, most of us are probably guilty of that on some level. How much time we spend scrolling through a Facebook newsfeed or Instagram or Twitter as compared with how much time that we spend reading the word of God. And as followers of Jesus, we need to immerse our minds with the capital T truth. And if we are shallow with the teachings of Jesus and, and, and theological study, we will inevitably be carried away by the various voices out there that are seeking to co-opt our message with their agenda. I got so excited I turned my iPad off. Just a second. Okay. And so, so that's, that's sort of the, the framework, right? That's kind of how we want to start to think about things. The question then is through thoughtful, through thoughtful study of God's word and through the renewing of our minds, we come to this question. How would Jesus interact with a democracy like America? And here's the thing. Even in attempting to answer this question will require a great deal of humility from us. Like Jesus, we will never fit comfortably in one tribe or another. No party or sect will ever feel like home for a Christian. We may have some preferences or some leanings, and that's fine, I get that, but we ought never to fit in one particular group. And so what are the core values that Jesus requires from every one of his followers that will influence our politics? You guys ready for me to tell you all the positions you need to have? nervous chuckling. Okay, here it is. God is for people. And as Christians, so are we. God is for the whole world, not just America. John 3 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to draw all people to himself to live in relationship and to dwell in his kingdom forever. And so as Christians, we need to be concerned about how our politics and our choices impact not just our nation, but the rest of the world. We, care, we, we are for not only the world, we're for our whole country, not just the coast. We care about all socioeconomic uh, levels. God loves the wealthy. God loves the middle class. God loves those who are under the poverty line. He cares about the person who's the warehouse worker. He cares about the unemployed. He cares about the entrepreneur. He cares about the billionaire. But the Bible also clearly teaches that he especially cares about the situation of the poor and the the vulnerable. 
We are for all ethnicities and languages, not just the one that represents us. Jesus calls us to care for the immigrant and the refugee, those born outside of America who come here, whether they're legal or illegal. We care about women, and we are concerned about justice. We're concerned about abuse and violence, and we are concerned about equality and opportunity. Christians value religious liberty and freedom for everyone, not just for Christians, but for all people in our country. Followers of Jesus are passionate about racial justice and anti-discrimination laws. We care about sins of today, injustices that happen today, and we care about injustices that happened in our past. Christians are pro-life meaning we care deeply about protecting the unborn. We see abortion as an invisible genocide that breaks the heart of God and ought to break our heart as well. We care about the preservation of human life. We are concerned with people who are suffering from diseases and disability and mental health. We care about not only their, their physical well-being, but their dignity and their worth being held up in our nation. We care about nonviolence and peace. We care for victims of violence, and we care for peacekeepers in our community. Christians care about the environment. God's creation has been given to us so that we might steward and that we are passionate about tending to our planet. We care for those who are in prison, the guilty and the wrongfully accused. We care about justice, and we honor the humanity of the convicted. We honor authority, whether we voted for them or not. We pray for them, we bless them, and so long as it doesn't violate our consciences, we obey them. And a hundred other things just like that. And some things on that list might seem like they lean towards one particular party, and some things on that list seem like they might lean towards a different party. And as Christians, we are concerned about the kingdom of God. Now, in Matthew chapter 25... Uh, right before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus tells a parable. It's a really famous parable about the, the sorting of the sheep and the goats. And this is that famous passage where people will say, Lord, Lord, when did we, you know, f- when did we take care of you when you were in prison? And when did we feed you when, when you were hungry? When did we clothe you when you were naked? And he said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did that for me. But have you ever noticed, this is something that really caught me this week, have you ever noticed that in verse 32, he says that all of the nations will be gathered for judgment? We constantly read this as an individual thing that each one of us will be held responsible for how we engage with the poor. But Jesus says that nations will be held accountable for how they treat the least of these. As Christians, Jesus cares not only for how we personally care for others, but also how our nation cares for the vulnerable, the hungry, the naked, the immigrant, the sick, and those who are in prison. And this, my friends, is why politics matters. It matters. It matters to God how we take take care of people, how we care for those who are vulnerable. And so as we engage in politics, in whatever way that we feel convicted to participate, we need to remember that Christians are called to oneness and unity in what is important and what Jesus says is most important to the Christian, but we can have disagreement and flexibility in how we accomplish the what. 
And that is why there is room for everyone in this room to be one together in Christ. Like, for example, Jesus makes it clear that the, the Christians are called to care for the immigrant and the refugee. And so, as Christians, all of us are in unity saying, we care about the situation of the immigrant and the refugee. But we may have differing opinions on how it's best to do that, whether that's to give more asylum to, to asylum seekers, whether that's providing paths to citizenship, whether that's tightening up the border and, and enforcing more legal immigration. We can have disagreements, robust disagreements even, on the how, and we can forcefully press each other. We can have, like, hard conversations with each other uh, on, on, you know, how we care for these, but we all have to be in agreement that Jesus commands us to care. And so this is why I want to say clearly there is no such thing as a Christian political party. You will find faithful Christians in this church who voted for opposing candidates. And that is not a sign that one group is more faithful than the other. It's not a sign that one group is more evil than the other. And so some Christians in the room and who are watching online this morning, right now after Inauguration Week, you might be feeling relieved and excited and hopeful for the future. And then at the same time, the people that you are sitting next to likely are feeling upset and frustrated and disappointed. And we make space for each other, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who alone is our hope. And a point on this, we, this is why we need to learn how to think theologically. We need to have strong theology to guide how we interact with each other. We need not demonize the other side. You see, it's crucial that your theology, that your theological framework, include a Satan. Because if you don't include a Satan in your understanding of how the world works, you will inevitably begin to see other people as Satan. You will begin to see the opposing party as the problem and demonize them. But the Bible clearly teaches that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, that these people are not our enemies. These people are our brothers and sisters, and we are all trying to figure this out together. We need to be concerned with the actual enemy. That's just an aside. Now, I have like five more sermons worth of thoughts that I would love to unpack this morning. I read uh, two and a half books this week. I, I feel like I'm just overflowing with stuff I want to say, but we need to land the plane. So I just want to close with some bullet point thoughts about how Christians should participate in politics in our nation. You ready for this? Okay. First, Christians should participate. Like, as we said, this stuff matters because people matter. And you, as an American citizen, if you are a citizen, have been given the right to influence what happens in our nation. So I want to encourage you to participate according to your conscience. Protest. Organize. Vote. Donate. Serve. Absolutely engage as God would lead you to. And I know that some people also have a conviction that they don't believe in voting, and, and I appreciate that, and I understand that. The call on your life is still to engage in, with, the, with the rest of society in such a way that you are promoting the values of the kingdom of God in our society. And you see, we seek, as a church, neither to control nor to abandon the world. We seek to love it into new life through redemptive participation. We are called to influence. Amen.
Okay, secondly, pray. Pray. We are commanded by Scripture in 1 Timothy to pray for those who are in authority. Have you ever considered the fact that your lack of prayer for leaders may in fact be a sin of omission that you might need to repent of? And I'm going to be the first person right here to put my hand up and admit and repent and confess that I have not been praying for our leaders as I should. I did not adequately pray for President Trump. I did not adequately pray for President Obama. I did not adequately pray for President Bush and Clinton as a kid. So, you know, uh, somebody I'm sure was praying for him. And I think that that's, that's, that's something that we need to be much more intentional about, whether you voted for him or not. Thirdly, we need to engage in discourse humbly and graciously. I think that we should share our hearts. I think that we should share our concerns and our convictions. I think that we should engage in thoughtful debate. And in so doing, we should have humble conviction. And when you engage in conversations, I think that we should do so according to these four principles. Here's what I think should mark the Christian's way of engaging in these discussions. First, Christians should be non-abrasive. We should be gracious and humble and patient. Second, we should be culturally sophisticated, meaning we should be reflective and deep in our thinking about issues of the day, understanding that issues are complex. They are not simple. Solutions are not easy. And understanding that the people that we are engaging with, likely, if they oppose us, are not fundamentally evil and opposed to the way of God, but just see things differently than we do. Third, I think that we need to be theologically conservative, meaning that our engagement on issues should flow from a biblically conservative perspective. And fourth, we should be always in search of common ground understanding that we live in a pluralistic society where not everyone is going to agree with us and not every issue is zero-sum. May I suggest that if you engage people with humility, with sophistication, theologically grounded, and seeking common ground, you will win more people and you will reflect Jesus much more. And finally, the last way that we need to participate is to have an eschatological hope in Jesus alone. We need to guard our hearts from the temptation to catastrophize or lionize leaders. We need to guard ourselves from the the need to be on the winning team because our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in his kingdom. As Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end. Amen? The end. Let's stand. Sorry that we went a little bit long this morning. I hope that that was in some ways helpful as we think about how to engage the rest of our culture. Um, And from here, what do we do with this? I think that we just continue to live this out. We continue to engage our culture according to these principles and these values we, we continue to have difficult conversations with each other so that we can grow, so that we can see justice flow like water through our land. Let's just take a few minutes now and uh, invite the Holy Spirit to come and lead us as we respond. So um, we're just going to kind of create some quiet space. I want to encourage you to, if you want to close your eyes, that's okay, or maybe put out your hands like you're receiving a gift. 
but we're just inviting the Holy Spirit. We're inviting God to come into the room and just begin impressing things on our minds and our hearts that we can take with us. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and lead us, Lord. We're not in a hurry, Lord. We just, we just want to receive from you. So we ask, Lord, across the room and um, with all of our friends who are watching online, God, I pray that, that just the weight of your presence would begin to rest on people, that they would be able to f- even physically feel the presence of the Holy Spirit surrounding them right now. I pray that your peace would fill living rooms and kitchens and bedrooms and offices and fill the sanctuary. Any tension that we felt during the sermon, we pray, Lord, that you would just dial that down and melt it away in the name of Jesus. Lord, even as you confronted specific idolatry last week in our time together, we again come to you, Jesus, opening ourselves up and asking you to reveal and highlight the things of this world that have got their hooks in our hearts, the places where we have given room for contempt to grow for other people, the places, Lord, where we have allowed our identity to get wrapped up in one team or another. And we ask, Lord, that you would just put the, shine the spotlight so that we can break our idols and live free with you, Lord. We just want to make some space for people to be able to continue to respond and receive prayer. Could I have the, those who are on the, the prayer team, the ministry team, come on up? Um, if you come in here carrying anything, whether it's related to the sermon or not, but you just want to receive some prayer, we would love to pray for you. And, and we, we, we believe God heals physical sickness and pain. We believe that God heals emotional scarring and pain. We believe that God heals broken relationships financial crisis, anything that you're carrying in here this morning that you'd like to get some prayer for, we want to pray with you. Um, Even if you just need a touch from the Holy Spirit, we'd love to pray and and just prophesy and encourage encourage you. So if you need that, go ahead and come on up at any time. Um, And if you want to just stay where you are and respond to the Holy Spirit uh, this morning, you can can just do that right where you are, linger as long as you want. Um, If you're watching online, uh, go ahead. You should be able to click the, um, the ministry link for a Zoom call if you'd like to receive prayer over Zoom. 
Uh, we'd love to, love to pray for you there. But um, I'm going to go ahead and just close us in a word of prayer. And then we'll just feel free to hang out, linger, pray with each other, encourage each other, and uh, we'll enjoy our time together this morning. So, Lord, we thank you for what you are doing right now in this moment, what you're doing in this church, and how you are refining us, Lord, by confronting difficult issues, things that have been allowed to grow in our hearts. We long, God, to be dead set going only after you, and we pray, God, for any correction where we get one or two degrees off in any direction. We just want you, God. So we pray, Lord, that you would refine us and release us to be your people exercising redemptive influence in our community. Lord, we pray for President Biden, and we thank you for his leadership, and we ask that you would give him a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord. We pray that you would give him dreams in the night, supernatural understanding and insight into complex issues, and that he would lead, Lord, according to your will, surround him with faithful men and women, God, to, to correct him when he goes astray. We pray for Vice President Harris. And God, we just ask, Lord, you would reveal yourself to her. Speak to her, Lord. Speak to her in the night. God, soften her heart to you that she, would, she really would be um, uh, following the promptings and leading of God. We pray for Governor Jay Inslee, and we ask, God, that you would give him wisdom and grace as he leads through very complex times and challenges, Lord. Pray that he would have conviction to be able to stand firm when he needs to, Lord, and that he would also heed the wisdom and counsel of others. Jesus, bless our governor. And we pray this for all of our leaders and all of our officials and countless other positions, God. Speak to them, Lord. Lead them as you will. May we be fierce critics when they commit injustice. May we be uh, people who praise when they walk according to righteousness. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to participate with you. And we pray all of this in your name, Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for hanging and, and coming this morning. Uh, if you'd like to receive prayer, come on up. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you next Sunday.